Hello? Hey, how you doing? Uh, whoa. Okay, I trust you. Um, well, my name again is Marshall. I'll be teaching on the verses that Molly just read. And yes, it is hot in here. The AC has been on for several hours. Uh, but it is hot. Feel free to fan yourself. Those programs, uh, multi-purpose, uh, you're welcome. So uh, I do want to give a quick update. Uh, I mentioned last week in my Friday video, uh, if some of you saw that, that we were able to close on the property uh, directly to our west, 760 Cherry. Uh, we've literally been trying to buy that property. We made an offer on it six years ago. We've probably been trying to buy it for ever. I don't know. Uh, but we closed on it. We own that property next door. Isn't that exciting? So... Um, uh, I will say, we, I just keep wanting to say this, we are doing a rent-back situation. There are people still living there, so it is not ours yet. Don't go knock on the door. Uh, do something obnoxious, uh, please. Uh, we do not yet possess it. Uh, we will soon. We're working with an architect. Things are moving quickly. We're not flying blind. I'm not flying blind, but there is heavy cloud cover. Uh, there is heavy, this is a fluid situation. Uh, this real estate, we're responding. Uh, every day it seems like there's something a little different, a little new. And to that end, I want to invite you to tell you about two things. First, I want to invite you to pray and to fast with us. Uh, the leaders of the church are calling for a day of prayer and fasting this Tuesday. It will gather in the West Hall at 12 p.m. There will be a Zoom link that comes out tomorrow. I think it went out in the Friday email. Uh, if you're not able to come in and pray with us in person but would like to join via Zoom, uh, I would call you to fast. If you're able just to even skip breakfast and have a late lunch, we'll pray from noon to 12.30-ish uh, in the West Hall and on Zoom. There'll be a, like I said, there will be an email that comes out tomorrow with a Zoom link. Uh, please join us uh, for that time of prayer and fasting. Uh, we're looking to the Lord. But also, uh, we want to give you a chance to ask questions. So next Sunday after the uh, service, there'll be a congregational meeting. We'll give you a little bit more color, more update on what is happening and give you a chance to ask a question. So uh, bring, your que- bring your prayers Tuesday, your questions uh, next, uh, next Sunday after the service. And I'll just say again, our motto all along, it's not about the building, it's about the vision and the mission. And Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we look to the Lord. Now, as we talk about renewing our building unto renewing our mission, there's almost no better passage to consider than Romans chapter 10. Almost no better passage to consider. I'm sure if I was preaching on something else, I'd say that. But nonetheless, uh, I actually think this is perfect for what we're talking about. Would you pray with me before we look at Romans chapter 10? God, you are God. You are mighty. You raise up. You cast down. You build, you tear down. You are God, and so often we forget that. We think we are the masters of our own fate, even the masters of the universe. So God, I pray that you would again humble us, uh, that you would bring us to the stumbling stone that we have just read of, that you would cause us to look upon you and be reminded that you are God and that you have loved us with an everlasting love, so much so that you sent forth your Son who was died and raised again, that he is Lord. We thank you for this good news as we look to it again in Romans 10. For Jesus Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, two years ago, our country, the United States, began celebrating something that Texans, my home country, I mean state, (laughs) has been celebrating for 160 years, and that is Juneteenth. Juneteenth this past Monday. Now, Juneteenth is a reminder of both a very dark period in American history slavery, and of a pivotal moment when by presidential decree, slavery was ended. If you don't know the story, 
Abraham Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation on September 22, 1862. Listen to the dates. It was announced on September 22, 1862. It was enacted, the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed the slaves. It was enacted on January 1, 1863. But an executive order does not an immediate reality make. And the slaves in Texas, particularly those in Galveston, Texas, did not hear about the Emancipation Proclamation until June 19, 1865, Juneteenth. When they heard the news, and when they did, as good Texans, they celebrated, right? They celebrated. Now, for the good news of freedom, the Emancipation Proclamation, to take hold, it had to be announced, it had to be enacted, it had to be proclaimed, and it had to be received, Now, if you've been with us in the past fall, we studied the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Two weeks ago, we picked back up in the book of Romans, and we picked back up in the treacherous Romans chapter 9. Treacherous because Romans chapter 9, if you were not with us two weeks ago, is about election and divine sovereignty. And for many, especially if you're hearing it for the first time, election can be a hard pill to swallow. I do hope you heard a clear case made from Romans 9 that Paul makes, but it's also exceedingly good news for broken people like you and me. Now, Romans 9 to 11, as I said two weeks ago, is often skipped over. Uh, but it's asking, Romans 9 to 11 is asking a super important question. And here's the question. How do we explain that all of the promises made to God's people, the people of the Old Testament that we call the Israelites, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, how do we square the fact that all those promises have been made to the nation of Israel, and yet there is so much disbelief, unbelief, and rejection of Jesus by the Jewish people? How are all these promises so great and beautiful, and yet if Jesus is the Messiah, why have so many Jewish people rejected Jesus the Messiah. Now, Romans 9 is the answer to that question looking to the past and this idea of divine sovereignty and God's election. Romans chapter 10, our passage this morning, is answering that question by talking about the present and our responsibility, your responsibility and mine. Because Romans 10 will argue that the message has been heard, even understood, but is being rejected. And you may think, Marshall, that's kind of intellectually interesting, uh, but it doesn't feel too important to me because most of us, I'm not Jewish. Like, I don't, you know, interesting, but how is this relevant to me? At a very basic level, Romans 10 is asking from a human point of view, what is necessary for salvation to experience the good news, the freedom of the gospel? Juneteenth is about the good news enacted and then proclaimed and then finally received. Romans 10 is about the ultimate good news of the gospel. Freedom from slavery, forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, heaven, heaven coming to earth. The list goes on. Romans 10 is about how do you get from the good news of an empty tomb 2,000 years ago outside Jerusalem, how do you get from that empty tomb to your life and to mine? That is the question of Romans chapter 10. So this morning we're going to dive into that. We're not going to actually go in the flow. We're going to go in the logical flow of this passage. Answering the question, what is necessary? What is our responsibility when it comes to salvation? I want to see three things. The content of the gospel. Responding to the gospel or the good news. Gospel just means good news. 
And third, the proclamation of that good news. The content of the good news, the response to the good news, and proclaiming that good news. First, the content of the gospel. Now, last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, when speaking on election, I said, and I still say this, you do not have to, I made a clear case, I think, but you do not have to believe in election, you do not have to believe in predestination to be a member of this church, or even to be a Christian, for certain not to be a Christian. You don't have to believe that. Godly people disagree on that, okay? As I said, I think Romans 9 is clear, and I think it's not just good news, I don't think it's just true news, I actually think Romans 9 is delightful news. It is, I mean, it set my heart free when I encountered it, but you do not have to believe it to be a Christian. You do not have to believe it to be a member of this church. But when I said that, I wonder if you're, well, well I wonder what you do have to believe uh, to be a member of this church. And more importantly, what do I have to believe to be a Christian? Well, the answer to that question is put concisely in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 10 of Romans. The Apostle Paul writes this, If you confess with your mouth, look with me, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'll just go ahead and read it, saying the same thing. It's using belief and and, uh, confession, by the way, synonymously. They're the same thing. He flips them. It's kind of poetic the way he does. But in verse 10 he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, to be a Christian, to be a member of this church, to receive the Lord's Supper, requires confessing, believing that Jesus is Lord and he has been raised from the dead. Jesus is Lord He's been raised from that. This is the reason why every week before we come to the Lord's Supper, we say the Apostles' Creed. Because it is a longer articulation of those two things. And anyone who believes the Apostles' Creed is a Christian and welcome to the Lord's Supper. We can get lost in the details. We can get lost in the controversies. But the simple truth to confess is this. This is what it takes. This is all. Jesus is Lord and he has been raised from the dead. Huge implications, massively important. And let me just ask, do you believe that? Jesus is Lord, and he has been raised from the dead. Some of you may have seen the stories uh, about a year ago, less than a year ago actually, a woman named Molly Worthen became a Christian. Molly Worthen, uh, she's a super smart person, Yale PhD, professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill, regular contributor to the New York Times. Uh, And she spent a lot of her academic life writing about religious people, including Christians. And she has, and I actually think listening to her still has some of the following concerns that you would imagine from a person from her secular perspective. You know, uh, professor, all this, you know, New York Times writer. She She has questions about miracles, sexual ethics, gender roles, how did we get the Bible, obnoxious Christians... And listening to her, I don't think she has answers to all those questions yet. She became a Christian last August, okay? But she was writing a cheap, Molly Worthen writes, kind of, she works kind of both as an academic and as a journalist. And she was writing a piece about a church in North Carolina pastored by a man named J.D. Greer. Some of you would know that name. He's a mega church pastor. And, and she, she was writing pa- this article about his church, and eventually she met with J.D. Greer. And J.D. Greer basically said to her, when it, he, he's a all on Baptist, just all in on evangelism. And he basically says, don't start around the edges, Molly. Don't start around the edges talking about Christian ethics or Christian church government, but these controversies. When it comes to Christianity, start at the center. Start at Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is raised from the dead. He says, put yourself face to face with Jesus. What do you say to him? What do you say about him? 
Now, if you're a skeptic, so glad you're here. And maybe you have some of the same concerns that Molly Worthen has and had. Maybe your concerns are different. Maybe you're concerned about the exclusive claims of Christianity. Maybe you're concerned about the historical record of Christianity, slavery, the Crusades. Maybe you're concerned about, what about dinosaurs? I mean, you, what, you have concerns, right? Let me be very clear. Those are very real concerns. They must and need to be addressed. And it is also true that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. Now, Molly Worthen, being an academic, investigated several things. But mainly, she studied the resurrection of Jesus. She read this book by Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, that's about this thick. And she came to the conclusion that the resurrection was not just historically possible, it was plausible and probable. In fact, that the Christian account of resurrection was the best explanation of the facts as we know them historically. And she came to faith. Okay, the main thing is the main thing to keep Jesus at the center. Jesus is Lord and he's raised from the dead. In fact, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if those things aren't true, we ought to all go to the beach right now. Okay? He doesn't say it that way. Um, Now, this is also true, not just if you're a skeptic and you're investigating. This is also true for followers of Jesus. And it's true for a follower of Jesus in two ways. First of all, as a follower of Jesus, if you're talking to somebody about faith, it's very important that you answer their questions, engage them, but to keep the focus on Jesus. But it's not just important for you as you talk about your faith with others. It's also about as you think about your faith for yourself. When you think about your faith. Your doubts, your failures, your past, your sin, your lack of assurance. Because what we need to hear is to focus on the main thing. Don't obsess about you. Focus on Jesus. You see, friends, all that is necessary to believe, all that is necessary to believe is that Jesus is Lord and he's raised from the dead. But don't miss it. It is necessary to believe Jesus is Lord. And he is raised from the dead. Do you believe it? And that brings me to my second point. Because once you focus on the good news, the content that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, the question is, how do I respond? How do I respond? Second point, responding to the gospel. And for this, we go back to the beginning of the passage. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 30. It speaks of how the Gentiles, that is the not, Gentiles just means non-Jew. It's basically, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Uh, how they have embraced the gospel, while many of the Jews have rejected. It says this, I'll read verses 30 through the first part of 32. Verse 30, look with me. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness. A righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not receive, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, on works. What is it that the Gentiles got, understood, believed that the Jews did not? Very clear, verse 30, the Gentiles have, quote, a righteousness that is by faith. Whereas verse 31 and 32, the Jews, they, have, they did not pursue it by faith, they pursued this righteousness based on works. Now, the key to this passage, and in fact, the key to all of Scripture in some level is understanding this, because it's all about being with right with God, being justified, feeling right, justified with God. And Paul is here contrasting the two different ways, 
to get that righteousness. Faith in Jesus and works. And to say works means a thousand, it means a million different things. There is a universal need in the human heart to feel right. To feel justified that my existence matters, that I am in the right. It is a universal human condition. Now, it's easily demonstrated with religious folk. I mean, for the Jews, it's according to the law. That's chapter 10, verse 5. For the Muslims, it is the five pillars. For secular people, there's other ways that folks justify their life, feel in the right. It's a thousand different ways. It might be having the right clothes, having the right friends, going to the right school, having the right opinions about the environment or politics or gender and sexuality issues. Let me say it provocatively and then perhaps humorously. Provocatively, there is a Greta Thunberg righteousness and there is a Donald Trump righteousness. Different politics, but the same thing. Donald Trump is saying, I'm righteous, I'm justified, follow me. Greta Thunberg is saying, the world is on fire, follow me. My view is justified. Human righteousness is often revealed by either the bumper stickers that are on your car or the ones you want to put on your car, but you're afraid of your neighbors. <laughs> All of us want to feel justified. And Paul is saying there's a million different ways to work that out that is called works. And there's one right way, and it is faith in Jesus. Righteousness by faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is believing... Faith is believing that Jesus is Lord and he is raised from the dead. And it is living out of that belief, knowing it, assenting to that truth, living out. And it is that simple and that challenging. Now, faith is necessary. This is super important. I'm going to use a prop. At some point, I'm going to use a prop. Faith is necessary, but faith is not what saves you. Faith is the means, it is not the ground of salvation. The good news of Jesus is the grounds. Faith is the means. To put it in the words of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith. Which is to say the relationship between the two points of my sermon, Jesus is Lord, point one, and relationship point two, the good news that is received by faith. I'm going to illustrate with a prop. A juice box. Uh, Capri Sun, okay? I don't think I've ever done this. So you have, on every Capri Sun, I hope this, this is what the danger of this is. Every Capri Sun, right? This is the good news of Jesus, raised from the dead. The straw is your faith, our faith. You can, I can't get this, right? Unless I poke it with this amazingly designed straw, right? Okay? <laughs> This is the means. This is the salvation. Do you understand the point here? This is the good news. You're like, Marshall, why are you belaboring this? You know, lowering yourself to a prop. Here's why. Because either when folks are investigating Christianity or as Christians struggling with their fates, their faith, struggling with their doubts, their grievous sin, their past, what they tend to focus on is the straw. We focus on the straw. This is where the focus needs to be. The good news of Jesus, right? The juice in the box. What matters is not the strength of your faith. What matters is the object of your faith. Said another way, what matters is not your faith so much, but what your faith is in. 
Let me use an illustration I've used before. Imagine two people with ladders trying to get on the roof of a house. One person is Arnold Schwarzenegger 35 years ago in his prime, bodybuilder, right? But the ladder before him is decayed, it is termite infested, it is broken down wooden ladder. It's not going to hold him. The other is a six-year-old little girl climbing a new OSHA standard Home Depot issued metal ladder. Who's getting on the roof? The little girl. And it's because she is strong. No, it's because what she trusts, the object is strong. The strength of your faith is not measured in you. It is measured in the strength of the object, who is Jesus. Your faith will wax and wane. And it is strengthened by looking to Jesus who never waxes and wanes. Don't focus on you. This is the same point of point number one. It's not about you. It's about him. Look to Jesus. And friends, this is another sermon for another day, but God loves faith. I just think God just set the whole system up. He loves us to trust him. He loves us to trust him with simple, vulnerable, unselfconscious, childlike, dependent faith. And he set the whole thing up because there's a million different ways to have works righteousness. A million different ways. From Donald Trump to Greta Thunberg. And I'm not saying anything about their politics. I'm just saying those are illustrations. My point is this. There's only one way to be right with Jesus. And that is faith in him. Pure, vulnerable, unconscious, selfless, childlike faith. Now again, this text is asking what is necessary for salvation. And we've talked about the center point, the content. Jesus is Lord, raised from the dead. We've talked about responding to that, which is by faith. There's something else is needful, and just like with Juneteenth, the good news needs to be published. It needs to be proclaimed. And by the way, in doing so, strength, faith is strengthened. So look with me at proclaiming the gospel in verses 11 to 13. Now, remember, remember where we are in the book of Romans. Remember where we are in the big picture, okay? This is right after Romans chapter 9, which taught us that God elects his people. Now, there's two massive, there's a lot of misunderstandings about election and predestination, but here are two of the big ones. First is that God is exclusionary and elitist because of this election thing. The second misunderstanding is there's no need to tell the people about, tell others about good news because election is all that matters and if God wants it, it's going to happen. Verses 11 to 15 are an undermining of both of those arguments. First, verses 11 to 13 show that the gospel, gospel is offered to all To everyone without condition. Look with me, verse 11. Everyone, everyone who believes will not be put to shame. Verse 12, look with me. There is no distinction. And then verse 13, I'll quote, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is declaration of independence, strong language. Paul is saying of Jesus and the gospel that it is equally accessible to all, And it is offered to all. No one is excluded from the free offer of the gospel. Anyone can lay hold of this. Second objection, verses 13 to 15. The objection is that because of God's sovereignty, we shouldn't proclaim. It's a waste of our time. But the reality is, is because of God's sovereign electing love, we get to proclaim this good news. Look with me, verses 13 to 15. I'm going to read it. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now, the essence of Paul's argument is actually seen if you put the verbs in the reverse. Or he does this rhetorical thing, like we ask all these questions. But let's flip it around. I'm echoing John Stott here. Let's flip it around. What is the order that he lays out here? This is super important. Jesus sends people to preach or herald the good news. The sent people go forth and then they preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call on Jesus and those who call are saved. And at the end, verse 15, Paul can't help himself. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach good news. How beautiful. It's our children's sermon. On the mountain are the feet of those who preach good news. Now, if you need to feel good today, I'm going to tell you what to do. Go online, go to YouTube, and Google Publishers Clearinghouse Prize Patrol. Publishers Clearinghouse Prize Patrol. These are the people, you know, Publishers Clearinghouse, I thought this thing is dead and gone. because I remember the commercials like Ed McMahon from my childhood, uh, but it's still going. But you enter these sweepstakes, and the prizes can be as large as $10 million or $5,000 a week for the rest of your life. That's, that's legit, right? Apparently there's scams out there, but there's also a legit Publishers Clearinghouse that still happens. So I watched some of these videos, right? The Prize Patrol. They are the people who get to deliver the good news. You, they show up at your front door with a check for $10 million. I mean, people, they, they go into shock, they shut down, they laugh, they cry, they hug them and kiss them. I mean, they do everything. The prize patrol. It is the best news, telling the good news. I got an email last week. Some of you know that for many years, six years, I was an RUF pastor. And I got an, uh, pa- uh, an email last week from a former student of mine. When I met her, she was a buckwild sorority girl, and, but she uh, came to our ma- meetings and became, uh, came to faith, came back to her faith in many ways, and now she is a pastor's wife. And she'd come across something that reminded her of me, and I hadn't talked to her in 20 years. She wrote me an email, and she said, thank you for telling me the gospel. I mean, I felt like I was on the prize patrol. I mean, what a good feeling. Because if you've ever gotten to see a Molly Worthen come to faith, it's like pure oxygen. It's not that we have to share our faith. It's that we get to share our faith. We get to proclaim the good news. It's not just that slavery is ended, but that salvation with Jesus is on offer. But notice where it all begins. It's the last thing he says. How can they preach unless they are sent? How do you get the ball rolling? You send. You send. And this gets to the heart of who I believe God has called this church and every church to be. You've heard me say before, you don't judge a church by its seating capacity. You judge a church by its sending capacity. How are we sending? Because unless we believe, unless we send folks out, uh, these things won't happen. But because we do believe that as a church, we believe that, uh, that people will not come to faith unless they are sent. We have the chance to set aside a quarter of a million dollars in this year's budget out of our growing budget to send folks like Mario out around the world to train pastors for the global church. Because we believe no one will believe unless folks are sent, we asked some friends of ours to contribute and then we got a mortgage so that we could buy a house in Evanston so that generations of Northwestern students can continue to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. We take missional risks, right? Because we believe that no one will believe unless folks are sent, we're in the process of trying to renew this building. 
so that we might renew our mission, so that we might send out more folks. One of my written stated goals is that we send out children and youth raised up in this church into the mission field, into the pastorate, that they don't just go into private equity and law. I want them to go into private equity and law. That's great. But I also want them to go into ministry to take the good news with them. I also have a hope and a goal that there are adults in the sound of my voice today that God is laying it on your heart to raise your head and say, who am I? Send me. That God is calling you to be sent. I wonder if someone is speaking, God is speaking to someone today. But make no mistake, don't let yourself wriggle off the hook. This is not just about the Marios of the world. It's not just about the pastors of the world. This passage is for all of us. We are all sent people to our friends, our family, our neighbor. And if you have believed the content of the gospel, that Jesus is Lord and he's raised from the dead, if you have responded through faith, it is your privilege to take that good news in word and in deed. Because, friends, you're on the prize patrol. You get to tell the good news. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who preach good news. Who will you tell this good news to this week? Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you for we, th- God, we thank you for the mind of the Apostle Paul who can just so vastly cover such a breadth of knowledge explaining to us your ancient promises and how they relate to us today. We thank you, Lord, that we get the privilege of being those who are the beautiful feet upon the mountain, those who preach and tell of your good news. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.